Weird times, creepy crimes, and unexplained phenomenon. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlo Weird Show. Here's your host and head weirdo, Mia Lorenzo. Welcome, weirdos. Thank you for joining us. Imagine setting off for a business trip. As you pull into the airport parking lot, you see a colony of wild monkeys running free. They're not very big and actually quite cute, so you don't feel threatened. They're just playful and curious. For a moment, you think, why are they here? They're born with a little pink face, and as they reach maturity, it'll turn black like the other ones. All play. It's like monkey zoomies going on. That's Dr. Missy Williams. She's the founder of the Dania Beach Vervet Project, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to promote the conservation, education, and welfare about the local monkey population. When I come out of here, uh, we check to see which monkeys are here. Uh, it's like an attendance type of thing to keep track of the individuals in the social group. We do look for any injuries and note that, and hopefully they can recover on their own, fingers crossed. And we keep track of the births, which happen during our wet season. And we log all this data to have a long-term data set, which really helps us predict the sustainability of the population. I had the pleasure of meeting Missy and observing these adorable primates in their unique habitat they call home. We are in the mangrove swamps of Dania Beach between Port Everglades and the Fort Lauderdale Airport. There's about 1,500 acres of mangrove swamp back here. Perfect for uh, our monkeys. Mikey! Do you know all their names? I do, yes. Sometimes uh, it took me a while to do that, uh, try to figure out who was who, so I videoed. I did a lot of videoing and studied that, and just by being out here all the time. I cut on quickly. That's Aubrey Frederick, an intern who's assisting Missy with research and care for the monkeys. I come out here and check on these guys, and I'm also doing my thesis on the, this group right here about um, the seasonal bursts and to see if there's any correlation with the patterns from past years till now. I'm actually fairly new to this. <laughs> but I've adjusted well and um, I love these guys. They're my clan. <laughs> and what's one of the interesting things you found out about the monkeys? I would say that their colors change as they get older. And I never knew that because a lot with, um, with primates, there's not very common to do that. And I also think that it's interesting how tight knit they are as a, as a group and how they watch out for one another which most primates do, but these guys, I can see it up close and personal. It's very interesting. Before we went monkeying around in the mangroves, I sat down with Missy to learn more about how these peculiar primates got here in the first place. How did these monkeys end up here? What kind of monkeys are they? They are green monkeys from West Africa, also known as vervet monkeys. And how did these monkeys end up here? Layla Roosevelt and her husband, Armand Dennis, opened the Anthropoid Ape Research Foundation in the early 1940s and were importing primates in for biomedical use. And then in uh, 1951, the Ash family bought it, renamed it the Chimp Farm. But in between those years, in the late 1940s, uh, a group of vervet monkeys escaped uh, around 12 to 15, and they never caught them. So the monkeys you see out in the mangroves today descended from that group. 
Is there a theory as to how these monkeys escaped? There are two stories. So one is that the zookeeper forgot to latch the enclosure or uh-huh. the monkeys were very clever and observed him unlocking unlocking the door daily and figured out how to unlatch and free themselves. I wonder why they decided to bring in these types of monkeys in in here, these these green monkeys in here. The green monkeys are in demand for biomedical use, and they historically have been, and they're still used today in labs because we match them so well physiologically, they use them for a lot of biology, for biomedical purposes. So it sounds to me like the second theory is more likely, is that they're very smart and they were able to unlatch the door. Because if you're saying their makeup is more like ours, like right. a human body, they are very smart. Right. They're very observant. So it wouldn't surprise me. And it was back in the 40s with the old eye eye hook with the spring. Oh, and yeah. you just pull it back. That's not going to keep a monkey inside. I'm no. sure they watched them a couple of times and just waited for the right moment and said, we're out of here and broke free. <laughs> there you go. And I really don't, I really don't blame them. No, no, absolutely not. So what are the what are some of the characteristics of these monkeys? Like not only in how they look, but their behavior, their personalities. I guess they can all be different personalities. Absolutely. Yeah. They're individuals just like you or I, and we've learned to recognize them through unique features. Some of them have scars or they might have limbs missing or there's certain marks on their face. It's almost like a freckling pattern that's unique to that animal. So physically, we can recognize them from those characteristics. But also the more time you spend with them, you get to learn their personalities and how they move and their mannerisms. And once you really get to know them, they could be 50 yards away and you won't need to see their face. You just know who they are. So when it became a monkey farm, what were they doing on the farm? The vervets were sold off for tuberculosis. Oh, excuse me. Polio testing, I believe, was one of the primary uses for them in the biomedical labs. And also at the same time, there were chimpanzees that were being used as well. You say that the monkeys that escaped, these are the descendants of those monkeys. How were you able to tell and track that they're actually the descendants of those monkeys? We did a lot of historical homework when I first started the project. How do monkeys from Africa end up in Dany Beach? That was the big question. It was so (laughs) bizarre. So we started looking. There really wasn't any official studies out there in the science periodicals. Uh, So I went to Google and I just started searching uh, monkeys, Dania Beach, and certain articles would pop up. And I ended up reaching out to a gentleman who made a documentary about them in the 90s. And he interviewed some of the former employees that worked at the chimpanzee farm and told us, you know, yeah, we know that they were importing these monkeys in from Africa and they escaped. And we really believe the animals here that you see came from that group. How have they been able to survive this long? Vervets are highly adaptable. So in their native settings in Africa, they do quite well. They are even urban. So they're quick to pick up on cues pretty pretty quick. And they, they're great at navigating uh, the environment. So they've done quite well with that. But what I really think has been beneficial for them is the fact that they are on a large parcel of mangrove property that's considered a conservation easement and it has not been developed. I really think that was their saving grace. Is that area at risk for development, or is it continually protected? I was told the 12 and a half acres that we lease are a conservation easement and that we can't develop or build anything on it. However, the other parcels around it belong to different businesses. So yes, they could be bought and developed. And so that's why I get very nervous with all this development going on in Broward that one of these land parcels could be stripped and developed, and then that's just less space for the monkeys. 
has their existence in the mangrove affected the local habitat, like the native habitat? At yeah, all? We don't think so. Um, they've been in the mangroves, you know, for almost 80 years, and we haven't noticed uh, a detriment at all. We don't actually ever see them feeding on anything native back there. They rely on humans mostly for handouts and for foods. You know, in Africa, they'll eat bird eggs, they'll raid bird nests. We don't see that here. We set up a camera trap and we caught a raccoon eating the birds, not the monkeys. <laughs> so I feel like the raccoons are always up to something, you know. Sneaky raccoons. Uh, they are. They're so <laughs> clever. They are so clever. So yeah, the, the things that you would think you would expect for a vervet monkey to do, they're not doing. Yeah. So that's really an unusual thing about them as well. They're not eating the native birds. We haven't seen them eating any of the mangroves. It probably doesn't taste good. I always tell somebody, you know, it's, I'm like, oh, it's like a, a salad. It's like a buffet back there of just lettuce. <laughs> Nobody wants to eat just lettuce all day. Yeah. That's what I think is going on. So that's why they're like, we're leaving. We're going to go into the parking lot and see if someone has a candy bar. Yeah, get the good stuff. It, yeah, they're not dumb. <laughs> I don't blame them. I couldn't live on leaves forever as well. So um, I think because it is such a unusual environment where they are, I think the stars have just aligned in their favor, you know, and uh, that's why they're still here. Let's go one step further back. How did you actually get involved? I was accepted into the PhD program at FAU for integrative biology, and originally I was going to go to Africa. I didn't know about this monkey population at all. So I was on course to go to West Africa, or excuse me, to Tanzania to work in Gombe National Park to study hybrid monkeys, males. I was very interested about the fertility, and it was really this through a casual conversation that I found out about the monkeys, and it was from a woman who was from Miami, born and raised, and she was in the lab with me, and she said, you know, there's monkeys by the airport. I thought, that's crazy. Why would there be monkeys from Africa here? And I started looking online, Googling, and YouTube, someone had posted, a tourist posted a YouTube video of the monkeys on one of the businesses, on the business lot. I called, and the woman answered and said, yes, there are monkeys. So I drove down to the lot, and I walked around, and sure enough, the monkeys showed up. What did you see when you drove up? It was urban. It's very urban, you know. So it was difficult to wrap my mind around the fact that they're free-ranging monkeys in an industrial area between the port and the airport. Was it fenced in like we see here? Yes, it was fenced in. It was All the businesses were established, but I believe in the 90s it was some mangroves. So they were slowly built in, um, built upon when the businesses bought the parcels. So yeah, when I first pulled up, it was all cars, air, you know, airplanes flying over. You could hear some of the, the passenger boats, you know, the horns tooting, and you'd hear the trains go by, and I thought, this is just too much. There can't be monkeys here. And I walked to the back, and sure enough, beyond the fence line is, you know, this 1,500-acre parcel of mangrove space, and that's where the monkeys live, and they come out when they want to look for food. It is, I mean, it is very startling, you know, these loud jets that go by, yeah. but I, I guess they've gotten used to it, you know, they just, it doesn't phase them? <laughs> I guess not. I to, like to us, it's disruptive when you're trying to have a conversation and you have to stop every three minutes to pause for a plane passing over. And I think they've just been here historically. And um, as the airport was developed, they got used to the sounds. They don't really flinch any time that a plane flies over. It's just every day here on the lot for them. The timetable that you're telling me this airport was always here. Okay. So the airport opened like in the late 1920s even. Oh, wow. Obviously, it wasn't this expansive. Right. But there was always an airport, and it was even taken over by the military during World War II. So there is a, so in other words, the airport's always been here even before the monkeys. It's always been busy, yeah, so they wouldn't yeah. know any different. Now, the local community, how do they feel about it? How do, they, do people think, oh, get these monkeys out of here, or are they supportive? 
the community absolutely loves the monkeys. I had to get permission for um, to gain access to the lots to observe the monkeys, and it was you know it was it took some time. They were really worried, you know, when you come in saying you're doing you're going to do research that I'm going to remove these animals for the lab or that sort of thing. And I said, absolutely not. I'm in here, you know, for um, wildlife conservation and I'm a huge welfare advocate for animals. I wouldn't remove them. And they said historically they've had issues with people trying to trap them. So they're very leery of people coming on. But I did the trade-off of any research that I do or anything that I publish or any talks that I give that I don't give the names of the businesses. They just trying to reduce any traffic coming in where people are trying to look for the monkeys. And what is your goal for these monkeys? I think with all this urbanization that's going on in South Florida, we're blowing up and the future of the monkeys, it's unknown. And for me, I think a peace of mind would be having a sanctuary set up, a large enough one. They're not in these very small enclosures, something large enough that they feel comfortable. They can engage in normal monkey behaviors but they're not exposed to people, the, the electric lines being run over by cars or being taken in for the pet trade. And these are the challenges that they have. This is what they're at risk of, correct? Right. Last week, we had one that was hit right out here on the road. Oh, that's so a shame. It is. It's, it's awful, you know. And people do zoom up and down this road, and the, people know the monkeys are here, but accidents happen. So I think if we are able to provide a sanctuary setting for them, these type of accidents can be prevented. And how many monkeys are we talking about? Tell me about this particular colony. How, okay. how many are there? So and I hear there's a new baby. Yes, there <laughs> is. You'll get to see him or her. We haven't sexed them yet. So okay. when they're first born, they stay really close to mom, so it's hard to get a good peek. So, But in total, there's about 40 individuals, but there's four social groups. And uh, there's two large social groups made up of about 16 or 17 individuals, and we have two smaller social groups. But the group that we're really concerned with is the one that you and I are going to go see today. They're the ones that I really think might have some issues with land encroachment and land development. And tell me what your challenges are. There are so many. Where do I start? (laughs) Well, they're considered non-native. So that label right there puts up a lot of roadblocks with some of the things that I would like to do for them. Typically, the state takes a remove-them-all attitude, regardless if they're non-native or they're invasive. And these monkeys are not invasive. They're just non-native. You know, the population isn't spreading. It's not growing. Uh, We're not getting complaints from the businesses. But regardless, the state has this euthanize them, remove them all. So trying to get the state to allow me to to put together some management practices has been very difficult. I just get told, well, they're non-native, they're non-native. So getting vet care is almost impossible. And, you know, we thought an idea would be to set up a feeding management plan to feed them, set up feeding stations, distribute throughout the mangroves, which would not 100% reduce them from coming out to the parking lots to get food, but enough maybe to keep them inside the mangroves to prevent these unnecessary deaths. So, I mean, I don't know when these laws were written. I mean, is it time to maybe change that law? I agree. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all for every non-native that is in the state of Florida. Right. Not every non-native species goes on to become invasive. So I think when the state has an opportunity to work with a nonprofit who's willing to take on the responsibility of a non-native, I think they should jump on it. But that's not happening. I wonder what it would take to make that happen or the steps that would, I mean, would it, would it be a powerful lobbyist or? That's what I think it would take, getting to the right person and lobbying to say, hey, you know, let's sit down and let's revisit your, your management plans. They're not working anymore. So let's think of something that's effective. Um, but 
is humane in the terms of not always having to euthanize and move forward from there, I think they should bring in people from different backgrounds to collaborate on this. It shouldn't just be people who specialize in invasion biology. What do you do to educate people, to get people like to see what's actually going on, to hopefully change their minds? We'd like to go out to do public outreach. So we just recently did an event at Lauder Ale. We're going to do a public outreach event at Fat Tap Beer. And so the businesses have been really hospitable. They want us to come in and we give a quick 10-minute talk and say, have you seen the monkeys? Do you know where the monkeys are? Do you know where the monkeys came from? Just to kind of see what their background is. And then we engage them in a conversation about the monkeys. And if you see a monkey, what should you do? And if they have any questions about the monkeys, there's a lot of myths that the monkeys carry herpes. They don't. And that was something that went through the news that goes in th through cycles. And this particular type of monkey species we have in Broward, they don't carry herpes. So we like to go out and educate the public through outreach. Why do you do it? Like, obviously, <laughs> you did it for your research, but right. you're you're continuing and continuing, and it's in your blood now. So tell yes. me, tell me why you're attached and you're continuing to do this. I realized um, at the beginning of my research that no one was going to bat for the monkeys. Everyone loves the monkeys, but there was not a collective group or a spot that people could come together and work together to see what they can do to help the monkeys. And I was just dumbfounded that the monkeys were not receiving any type of welfare efforts at all. And I'm a huge animal welfare advocate. And the thought of walking off the site and leaving them to the unknown broke my heart. You get attached to them. They have their own personalities. And I just couldn't let that happen. And if somebody wants to be involved or learn something or check out one of your events, how do they do that? They can go through our Facebook page or our Instagram. They could go to the Danny Beach Vervet Project, and it should pop up in the search bar for either those social media platforms, or they can t check out our webpage, vervetproject.org. Okay, cool. Well, let's go look for monkeys. That sounds like a plan. It's about that time. <laughs> Monkey time. <laughs> That was Dr. Missy Williams of the Dania Beach Vervet Project, who enlightened us as to the challenges that face the local monkey population. If you'd like more information about the project, go to vervetproject.org. We'll also have a link on our website at soflowweird.com. Next is a really strange story about Florida's toad invasion. Yes, you heard me correctly, a toad invasion of biblical proportions. Now, as you know, we always feature a story by Florida's Master of the Weird, Charlie Carlson. And anyone that knew Charlie personally knows he would sometimes make up stories and you'd have to gauge whether it was true or not, because he had this great poker face. So when I came across this story, I said, no way. But this, indeed, is true. It was also reported by the New York Times and by United Press International. But on this show, however... We get our story straight from the master. This can be found in Charlie Carlson's book, Strange Florida. The Great Toad Invasion of 82. Many Longwood, Florida residents will never forget May 25, 1982, the morning they awoke to the mysterious invasion of toads. They came out of the ground overnight millions of toads churning and hopping their way through Longwood neighborhoods. 
The toads invaded patios, sidewalks, and popped like firecrackers as cars drove over them in the streets. One newspaper account related the phenomena to a biblical plague. One observer described the scene as tons of toads. Another person reflecting back on the event remarked, no one will ever believe it. This was something that you had to see for yourself. Residents say that just driving through the streets was a nightmare. Some tried swinging brooms at the amphibious critters, but they just kept coming. One woman complained that some had found their way into her home and that others were diving like lemmings into her swimming pool. Another resident reported that it was nearly impossible to walk down the sidewalk. You had to literally wade through the toads. People were afraid to let their pets go outside, fearing that the toads might be of a poisonous variety. The roads soon became a mess with squashed amphibians. Residents resorted to shovels just to clear toads from their driveways. The mysterious toad invasion lasted for four days. Then, overnight, they vanished as quickly as they had appeared. Apparently, they went back into the earth, remarked a mystified housewife. The great toad invasion is one unexplained phenomena that was quickly explained by Florida scientists. The toads were identified as spade foot toads, a species of amphibian indigenous to Florida. Biologists explained how extra rain during the winter had provided more fresh water for the toads to breed in. While scientists agreed that the amount of the critters was unusually high, the phenomena was not so odd. It has really been going on for nearly a million years. This has been a common occurrence in this part of Florida. It's just that the new residents transplanted from the north were not aware of such weird wonders of Florida. But, as several native-born Floridians commented, just be glad it wasn't an invasion of alligators. Know of a weird place or have a weird tale to tell? Go to SoFloWeird.com. If you want more strange Florida stories, be sure to visit us on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us by searching at SoFloWeird. And please join our SoFlow Weirdos Facebook group, where we share Florida's dubious tales every week. As a fan of the SoFlow Weird Show, there are many ways you can become involved. Our goal is to create a community of weirdos who celebrate all things strange in the Sunshine State. Soon we'll be launching a membership with exclusive benefits and some really cool events. But for now, here's how you can join our team. Are you a super fan and weirdo to the core? Then consider joining our SoFlow Weird Street Team. Get free stickers and represent us on social media with the hashtag SoFloWeirdStreetTeam. Just send us a message on social media or through our website and you'll be on your way to street team status. Like what you hear on this podcast? Then consider giving us a review and please share with your friends. If you wish to support the SoFlow team and our freakish mission to entertain your insatiable appetite for weird stories, then go on our website pick up some SoFlow swag, or buy us a coffee, and we'll give you a shout-out on the show. I'm Mia Lorenzo. Thank you for listening to the SoFlow Weird Show. Special thanks goes to our weird announcer, Joe Johnson, and Michelle McArdle for promotion and production assistance. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. Stay weird, everybody.